This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast today. Today, my guest is Emma Turner. Emma is a teacher, leader, parent, and writer. She taught in primary school for 13 years, first as a classroom teacher, then assistant head, then deputy head, and then going on to form one of the UK's first all-female co-headships. After 20 years in primary, Emma joined the Discovery Schools Academy Trust, where she is now their research and CPD lead. Emma is also a columnist for the TES, an ambassador for the Gender Equality Collective, and a member of the Women Ed community. Emma is an advocate for balance in leadership and family life and speaks regularly on how part-time leadership and flexible working can be hugely successful. Amongst all of this, she is the self-titled Chaos Coordinator at Home and author of the refreshing and informative Be More Toddler, a leadership education from our little learners. Emma, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. So just to kick us off uh, today, Emma, could you share a little bit about you and your career today? Right. Well, I qualified in 1998, which makes me sound about a thousand years old. Um, I don't nod. <laughs> um, I qualified as a science teacher, actually. And I did a weird course where I was qualified to teach science for Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3, but actually went and spent my entire career in primary back in Leicestershire. I qualified up in Liverpool. And then I worked in multiple schools across Leicestershire and then eventually became, um, I say eventually, my fourth year, third or fourth year, became a national numeracy strategy consultant for the local authority. So worked um, with lots and lots of schools across the county, um, rolling out the national numeracy strategy. And then after that, went back into school because I missed being in school, went back into my school and was class teacher mostly upper key stage two, mostly year six, because once you get into year six, you can never get out. Um, <laughs> and then I did assistant head, deputy head, and then, as you said in your intro, was one of the first all-female co-headships, uh, which we came into, which we'll talk about later, I think, which we came into quite by accident, but actually it turned out to be really, really a really great experience and then after doing that for eight years and having three babies in five years whilst in the co-headship and that was just me Claire had another two <laughs> during those five years there was a magic chair we don't talk about it um then I left there to join Discovery where I now still work part-time but in a leadership role and I do all their research and CPD work from right from NQT all the way up to sort of head teacher CEO level. So I've got a quite a varied, broad brief at the moment. Lovely, very, very well travelled across the across the, the spectrum of uh, teaching jobs. Um, can I just, as you alluded to there, how did you find that co-headship? Because it's extremely fascinating. And, and why do you then, do you think then we should incorporate that, in, that kind of that model into more school leadership roles? The short answer is yes. <laughs> the longer answer is uh, Claire and I sort of chanced upon the co-headship really we were both deputies at the time and our head left mid-year 
And I was literally just about to start a course of IVF. And at the time, you needed to have your MPQH to be a head teacher. And Claire had only just become the deputy and hadn't started her MPQH yet. So wasn't necessarily in a position to take on the headship. I was pretty much hoping I wasn't actually going to be there because I was hoping to be on maternity leave. And we kind of undenied about what to do and eventually went to the governors and said, well, neither of us wants to do it or can do it on our own how about we do it together as a little pair? And I'd found a document from the DfE at the time, which was sort of one case study in one school somewhere of a co-headship model. So we managed to say to our governors, you know, this is, it is a doable thing. Um, and we spent quite a lot of time setting it up because like our local authority didn't even know how to pay us because there was no drop-down menu that said co-head. You were either the head or the deputy. There was nothing. So there's lots of kind of, issues to iron out there but in terms of the actual co-headship and how it worked because we were already both deputies there was no resistance from the staff or the parents or the kids or anybody it was just oh you're doing it that job at the next sort of leadership stage really and it was absolutely brilliant because Claire's got a very different sort of experience background to me she's sort of arts and uh, literacy and I was science and maths and so that was an automatic compliment there she had a vast array of key stage one experience and I was mostly key stage two and then transitioned into key stage three so that was great as well and the more I would think about co-headship and co-leadership models the more it works because I don't want to say two for the price of one, but say with one person, you get 10 years experience. With two people, you've got 20 years worth of experience to, to draw upon. Um, and it just means that you retain talent in the system as well, because the biggest demographic that leaves teaching is women aged 30, uh, 30 to 40. 37% um, of people who leave teaching are in that demographic. And if in any other demographic you are hemorrhaging talent like that, you try and hang on to them and a lot of the time it's because women are leaving to to raise a family there are of course myriad other reasons but a lot of it is because they they want to be at home with the children or they um they want to be the child's main care or whatever um and so it retains that talent in the system and it means that you don't lose that experience as well because it's not just about people leaving and then not having anybody to replace it with. It's the fact that those people who are leaving are the mentors, they are the experienced teachers, they are the future head teacher. It's, it's, it's such an awful demographic to lose it from because you can backfill with early career teachers, but then who's going to mentor them if, if, if everybody who's experienced has left? Um, and the, the flexible model as well is brilliant because... I mentioned that Claire and I between us had five babies in five years. It meant that we could cover each other. Whereas if you've only ever got one person in the role and that person leaves, somebody who potentially was deputising has to step up. Whereas within a co within a shared role, there isn't that sort of inherent built-in flexibility for you to cover for each other. And also it means that no one person ever either has to carry the can or is responsible for making an absolutely horrendous decision because there's always somebody there to say, that's not a very good idea <laughs> or for that accountability. And then in terms of well-being, because there is so much um, so much work to be done in the well-being sort of area and sector, it's brilliant for well-being because there's two of you. Because especially in headship, it's 
you're, you're most vulnerable in headship because there's nobody else doing the same job as you. You're either being line managed by your governors, your trustees, whoever it is, who's who you are held accountable by, uh, or you're line managing everybody else. There's nobody there with you in that role. So nobody understands what it's like to walk a mile in your shoes. So having that shared role means you've got that support for each other. And the number of times that we would, somebody would bring something to our door and we'd think either that, you know, that was horrific or traumatic or it was difficult or we didn't have the answer or we just didn't know what to do. We'd go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, okay, leave it with us, we'll sort it out, shut the door. And instead of going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We'd just look at each other and go, well, <laughs> what, what are we going to do with that one? But there was never that struggle on your own. There was always that inbuilt support. And, and it's such an untapped model, not just for maternity, but for people who want to retire or reduce the number of days or people who just want to have a life. People who want to spend more time at home or maybe have got a spouse to care for or have got their own health challenges. You know, it's it's it annoys me that it's not more common because it is so brilliant. It's like I it's like I know the secrets of it and I want to kind of tell everybody about it. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, yeah, I love that idea that you said about retaining talent because I had an earlier podcast with Cat uh, Howard and the, um, she referenced the amount of people that leave teaching and if, if that was in the private sector it would just be unheard of because as you say that talent needs to stay and if we can do that in, in core roles then then why don't we do that in, in all levels of the of the school leadership system not just just headship why can't we do that like everywhere because you said people trying to have a life or people trying to raise a family or people trying to just have that support it sounds Sounds fabulous. So kind of moving on then for the rest of the podcast, I'd like us to to focus focusing on on your book, Emma, which I, I read and as I said was incredibly refreshing and informative, and I, and I love the anecdotes through it. So <laughs> how did you? It's like therapy for me, just writing about. <laughs> I can I can totally imagine you getting that one off your chest and the next one off your chest and, and sharing it with the. So I think it was very. I'm going to come to it later. It was very brave that you shared some of those some of those <laughs> private stories with with the rest of the education community to to marvel at. So how did you come to write Be More Toddler Emma? What what gave you that idea? I had I had come upon the idea when I went to a ball pit at a soft play and I was there and I bumped into a former colleague who'd been one of our interim head teachers and he's such a nice guy, so supportive, so brilliant. And I was there and I'd got my eldest one who was five, I just turned five and then a two year old and a, a brand newborn. To be fair, I don't know what I was doing in soft play. I should have been at home, but <laughs> we'd ventured out. We had to get out of the house. And he was like, he was there with his grandchildren and we kind of showed each other our lovely children. And he was like, oh, you were always going to do so well. You were so brilliant. You were so this, you were so that. And I was like, oh, God. And I got into the soft play and I wanted to tell Claire, my old co-head, I wanted to say, oh, I've, seen, I've just seen, you know, I've just seen our old colleague. And it was so lovely. And then I suddenly realised he spoke about me entirely in the past tense. And I suddenly thought, oh, crikey. Potentially, this could be a defining moment for me. This, and that's why I call it the, you know, the ball pit revelation. As in, that could have been the moment where I thought, I'm just going to step out now. I'm just going to sort of say, well, that was that was a nice part of my life in education, in leadership. But now I'm here with soft play balls and a 
puking toddler. And then I looked at my two-year-old who was trying to climb this set of stairs and she was so determined and so resilient and didn't give a monkeys about what was going on. She was just going to do this regardless. And I thought, wouldn't it be brilliant if we all thought like a toddler? And it was just like a little spark of an idea. And then I started to think more widely about how they had managed to completely affect change in every single aspect of our lives at home. And I thought, in terms of leadership, they're pretty blooming good because they change everything. They change the way that you eat, when you when you sleep, or in my case, don't sleep, um, how you organize your house, where you go, what you do. Um, and I thought, if you could do that and affect such whole-scale change in leadership, it would be amazing. Then I thought, how do they do it? Because they can't even talk or go to the toilet <laughs> without help. So what is it about them? And that's when I started to look more carefully at actually how do toddlers change things in a household and what is it that's kind of the magic of a toddler that we could harness or reconnect with because obviously we've always we've all been a toddler. How could we how could we look at how they affect change and how could we learn from them and kind of remember the things that we might have lost along the way and that's what that's where the book came from really. <laughs> sounds uh, sounds wonderful, and we're going to dig even further into that. So, you gonna, the book is is full of, of wonderful anecdotes and stories. But can we can we start by discussing how how your little ones can can help us find our vision for leadership, and then then stick to that vision? <laughs> um, there's a bit in there about finding your chocolate buttons, and. It came from when my eldest was in the post office and she'd got, she, I hadn't given her the chocolate button, she swiped them from the, the shelf thing beside me. And I was trying to get them off her to put them back and there was no way this kid was giving up these chocolate buttons. They, they were hers, they, she was gonna have them, she was holding on to them, she was absolutely determined hold on to Grimdeth, did the whole push chair plank where they arched the back and got like 15 million people in the in the queue just tutting at me. It sounded like a Geiger counter was going on. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, dying a thousand deaths is the worst parent ever. And then I thought, actually, that's what you need in leadership. That was one of those moments where I thought, you've got to be really clear about what you will hold on to for, you know, until the end for grim death really. So the first thing in leadership is to kind of look at what is it that you really will fight for? Um, what drives you? What what are you absolutely indignant about? Um, and for different people it's different things and that's really important as well because not every school needs to be served by exactly the same leader. So different people have, have got different drivers, different things that really motivate them. So, But being clear about that will help you to filter all your future leadership decision-making. If you are absolutely clear about what it is you believe in, what are your kind of leadership chocolate buttons, what will you not give up for anybody? doesn't matter what initiative comes in, doesn't matter what angry parent comes in, doesn't matter what you know prickly member of staff you're dealing with you know you are not budging on that because you know that that's what you what's right um so that's the first thing the chocolate buttons and then the the opposite of the chocolate buttons is celery because my children hate celery absolutely hate it and it doesn't matter what i do with it and how i try to hide it they will find it and as a united trinity of celery haters will just go no this is not for us because again, part of leadership is not always saying yes to everything. 
but it's also knowing when to say no. So what are the things you will not tolerate? So find out what you definitely want and also what are the things you won't tolerate? And once they're communicated really clearly, that will guide every other piece of decision making, every strategy, every thought process, every decision that you make. So from toddlers, what they taught me, find your chocolate buttons, find your celery and make sure everybody in your organization understands those as well. Because not no one person in that post office queue didn't know that my daughter believed in those chocolate <laughs> She had communicated that very clearly. And likewise, I only have to look at my three children's faces when I when I present them with whatever casserole or fricassee or stew, and they just look at me like wearily, like no, <laughs> this is this is not for us, mummy. This isn't us. So find your chocolate buttons that you want to fight for, and also find the things that you're going to say no to because you just don't buy into it and you just don't believe it, and then make sure everyone in your organisation is on the same page with that. Absolutely outstanding, and, and believe me, I think it's not to toddlers that don't like celery. I, I just <laughs> don't know how anyone could actually eat that. And my good, my good lady tries to tries to give me snacks at work and go, oh, celery and, and hummus. No, no, I, I think myself and your toddlers can sit there with the the big no. Um, Say no to the stringy veg. No. <laughs> yes, keep that away. <laughs> what the the most hilarious anecdote in the in the book for me? I just could not stop chuckling away, but also feeling that that se- <laughs> that sense of absolute exasperation for you it must have been your very enjo- um, was your are we there yet car journey that you oh, shared, God. and then it kind of had an important message about. Uh, the importance of leaders checking in with staff and not checking up on them. Can you share more about that, please? It was an absolutely disastrous journey to a very well-known holiday village, forest holiday village, and it was just horrendous. We'd got one of the kids potty training. I was still trying to feed the newborn the the none of the car seats fitted in the car so we got one kid up the front me wedged literally wedged in i couldn't move my elbows it was ridiculous between the two little ones it chucked it down with rain the traffic was horrendous when we got there it was absolutely awful we'd we'd got my husband on the side of the road in a lay-by trying to potty train the middle one who had decided in the traffic that she needed to go in a gale it was (laughs) And then on the way back was just like a scene from Poltergeist with every single one of them exploding from every orifice you could ever, ever want to explode from to the point where we had no clean clothes in the car. I had to stop at a branch of necks on the outskirts of Coventry wishing we were dead, basically. It was just horrific because it was also, well, I didn't put it in the book, it was 32 degrees that day as well. So all of these exploding bits of children everywhere were being gradually steamed in the car. <laughs> it's just horrendous. So Tom and I often talk about that journey as being probably one of Dante's circles of hell that's yet to be explored. That that car journey is in there. Um but we asked the kids about it. They absolutely loved it. They thought it was hilarious. They thought it was brilliant. They liked counting the wind socks in a gale, which was my husband's desperate attempt to entertain them on the way down they thought it was brilliant to ride up front in the car they remember going to the shop and buying new clothes and and all the way through that journey they kept saying are we there yet are we there yet are we there yet and it was an interesting um 
turn a phrase because they weren't saying, am I there yet? It was, are we there yet? So as part of leadership, it's however bumpy the journey, however horrific it is, you're kind of all in it together. Um, And the question that you need to be asking is as a group, are we there yet? Not, am I there yet? Because, I mean, there's that old thing about there's no I in team, but actually it's as a group, as a school, as an organisation, you can't move forward unless you're all in it together. And you've all got your individual roles, like we had in the car. I was chief sick wiper, snack provider, Tom's driving, you know, my eldest sorts the soundtrack, that kind of thing. Everybody's got their own individual jobs, but nobody gets to anywhere unless you all get there at the same time. So are we there yet is about making sure that your monitoring and evaluation systems in school are about checking in and seeing how far you are on your journey towards the bigger vision, not micromanaging all those individual kind of potential little bits and bobs or disasters along the way. Um, And so when you're putting in place things like appraisals and performance management and um, opportunities for CPD, It's got to be done in a much more kind of collegiate way. And then the evaluation systems need to be driven by the people who were involved in that rather than external people coming in and going, what have you done? Are you there yet? It's more about, let's all evaluate this and think, are we there yet? Where where are we trying to go? And how far along that journey are we? Um, And so it's about checking in and not checking up on people. Because if you ever come to any of the training I do, I talk about pig weighing quite a lot, as in it doesn't matter how many times you weigh a pig, it doesn't make it any heavier. And it's the same with any kind of leadership thing. It doesn't matter how many times you collect the data or how many times you badger people for stuff. It's not going to improve anything unless you're having proper developmental conversations that are driven by the people who want to be involved in getting the thing better and getting there. So... Um, yeah, the whole the whole horrific car journey was a lovely extended metaphor for it. Doesn't matter how disastrous the trip. Big big accident. We're all it all it together, and it's some it's something that that you and your family will talk about for 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 years to come. And that that's the same what we want out of our school experience. You want the children in the school, you want the teachers in the school to to leave that leave their job, leave the retire from their work or whatever, and remember that we were all doing the same thing. There's there's often far too much. I mean. I'm not not afraid to to, to say that as often there's a lot of lot of I and, and me in, in the education and not enough we and we're all yep. in, we're all in it for for the for the same thing and and kind of across the country we all want the best for our for our young people and it was a very important message that you sent there but a wonderful wonderful story that you you teed, teed up teed up with there's, there's so much more joy as well in achieving something as a group rather than just achieving something by yourself because some of my fondest leadership memories and fondest teaching memories are when we achieve something as a team whether it be a difficult Ofsted that we came out of and actually did really well with or we'd managed to work with a really challenging cohort but as a team of professionals and you know we'd got them to a certain point or got them secondary ready or whatever you want to do all of my happiest and most kind of joyful memories of education and also all of my best developmental learning points came from working alongside other people and being part of something bigger than just what I was doing because I don't think in a profession where you're dealing with people ultimately you're dealing with with children and their families and the communities you cannot be one person on your own and affect change you've got to be part of something bigger and that's why it's always are we there yet not how far have I come
kind of thing. Mm. Obviously, you've got to be a reflective practitioner, but you're you cannot be one person in education. You're part of a of a family of professionals, and you can't be everything to everybody. Absolutely agree, and a great great message there, Emma. And kind of brings us on to the idea of building teams, and building teams is absolutely vital in successful schools. Can I, what can we learn then from it when toddlers say, watch me mummy and <laughs> angel delight? Uh, watch me mummy is at the park where once again you're pushing the swing for hours on end. <laughs> you're thinking, God, I've never been more cold or bored or hot, depending on what season it is. But what toddlers do is they celebrate success. They focus on the positives and they are not afraid to say, look how well this is going. Unfortunately, in, in this country, um, we're not very good at blowing our own trumpets for fear of for fear of being seen as brash or boastful or whatever. Um, but actually, we do need to celebrate how well our profession is doing. And it's really one of the great things that's actually come out of this lockdown thing, if there's anything positive going to come out of it is the fact that teachers have been recognised for the contribution that they do make that, and, and they are being celebrated because they recognise, people are recognising that it's not just classroom-based success, that schools are kind of the anchor in a community and the teachers are, are the people who help anchor that community. But we need to celebrate more widely ourselves the successes that we have personally, as a team, as a school. Um, and it because it helps other people in the organization be motivated to see that to see that goal um and if you've never spoken to ray snape before i would and she talks a lot about unconditional positive regard about always seeing the positive in people and always approaching a situation with this unconditional positive regard which is what toddlers do they never go into anything really really um anti it unless it's just celery but they, they generally just go oh this looks interesting and and we don't necessarily do that as, as adults um but the the park metaphor with being at the park about watch me mummy as well is as a leader you've got to have that unconditional positive positive regard for all aspects of the job and not all aspects of the job are particularly scintillating or exciting and for diff for different people they will have their creative fires or intellectual fires stoked by different parts. For me, oh my God, finance and um, budgeting and assessment data, I would do it, but I wouldn't get up in the morning and go, woohoo, this is for me, <laughs> this is my favourite thing. Whereas Claire really used to enjoy that part of it, but there were other parts of the job that I really, really enjoyed, and she'd be like, this one's for you, this bit's for you. And again, that's another success of the co-headship, but You've got to be, as a leader, have that unconditional positive regard for every single person in every role in your organisation because that builds trust and it builds mutual respect and it builds that positive regard where when you have to have a difficult conversation or you have to, or you know, times are tough, you've got that positive regard in the bank and they trust that you respect them and, and have this positive outlook for their role. So for me at the park, it was the relentless swinging that used to drive me insane but when they're going watch me mummy of course i'd be going that's lovely <laughs> brilliant lovely and then the angel delight thing was my daughter who leant forward in the car when we we're driving back from my mum's and there's a beautiful sunset she look mummy red sky at night angel delight and i'm like not exactly 
exactly. Uh, it's not Red Scout Angel Delight, Red Scout Night Shepherd's Delight. And she was like, oh, oh, all right. And kind of just sat back and got on with it. And again, I thought, if that had been an adult in a meeting and they just made an absolutely crashing error like that, they would be internally withering and dying at that point. They would just be like, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and it was a, a reminder that actually, if you never make a mistake, you don't learn anything. And toddlers are experts at making mistakes. They make mistakes all day long. For God's sake, most of them can't even use a spoon properly. <laughs> um, but they don't care because they know it's part of the learning process. Um, and my colleague, Phil Page, always says, you know, when things go wrong, it doesn't matter. When things go right, it's great because some you win, some you learn. And that's his mantra. Some you win, some you learn. And that's exactly what toddlers do. And it's about in leadership and in teaching in any aspect of life, really, if you make a mistake, unless obviously, you've, you know, there are some crashing mistakes in life that you genuinely don't want to make, say, in disaster. But on the whole, most mistakes that you make in a day, it doesn't really matter. And the, the chances are, once you've made that mistake, you will never make it again anyway. So unless you make any mistakes, you're not going to learn anything. So it's about that vulnerability as a leader, about not being wanting to be perfect all the time and not having that kind of perfect persona because then you become Teflon and nothing sticks to you and nobody can get close to you and nobody can uh, or even see you as any any kind of role that might be obtainable for them or achievable for them. You've got to be vulnerable as a leader and you've got to be human and you've got to be seen to make mistakes and then you own up to them you hold your hands up you don't cover them up and you just go oh right i'm really sorry let's move on you don't kind of i mean a toddler doesn't try and necessarily go it wasn't me that said that <laughs> they just go oh <laughs> all right and then they don't do it again and the other thing about the the unconditional positive regard and the vulnerability is because we set the weather in our organisations. We determine how people feel. We we always underestimate as leaders how much influence and sway we have over the climate in a school. And I've worked in schools where if the head was in a vile mood, you knew it from about eight o'clock in the morning. Even if you hadn't been near their office, it kind of permeated the building and you knew what kind of mood they were in. So it's just being aware as a leader that not only are you watching the success of others, but people are watching you and they you need to set the weather for them and make sure that whatever you do is what you want other people to do as well. And if you're behaving really badly and really grumpily and, and not having that unconditional positive regard, then that's what you're going to get back because you set the weather, basically. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't. I could not agree with that more. And I, and I love that idea of celebrating success and just accepting mistakes. Things. I teach a physical education. I talk about mistakes on almost a daily basis. And now it doesn't matter. You've you've missed past a football. Who really cares? But yeah. in that moment, to some people, to some children, it's it is. It feels like life or death. But it honestly isn't. Um, can I bring this on now to? Quite a, quite a funny turn of phrase that I hope you allude to a little bit later on is how did dinosaurs, boiled eggs, breakfast discos and doing it on myself help us develop as leaders? Um, right, well the dinosaurs bit was about being confident in your own decisions. My youngest son, I mean the picture on the front of my book is him in his tiger outfit. That's a photo adapted mm. from a photograph him in, in his tiger outfit. But he used to have a dinosaur outfit with a massive foam head on it as well. 
but he used to go everywhere in it. He just didn't give a monkeys. And he's, he's sitting there in the trolley at Tesco's dressed as a T-Rex with his massive head on. Almost like, what are you looking at? This is this is me. I am a dinosaur. And again, it's about in leadership, not really caring what people think because you are so confident in your the chocolate buttons and the celery that it doesn't matter how ridiculous or how much criticism you might be coming in for. Actually, if you're really clear about what you're trying to achieve, just be guided by that. And there, whenever you make any change anywhere, there will be critics. You you listen to your critics, obviously, because you don't just go and go, I know all the answers. <laughs> listen to me. Either. But actually, it's about having that confidence to think, this may look and feel a little bit stupid at the moment or a little bit different, but I don't care because this is where we're going. So it's about having that confidence. So the dinosaurs bit was just to harness that bit of, whatever i don't i don't care what you think um uh from other people the eggs <laughs> was my two eldest daughters the first one uh, we've been practicing throwing a ball all morning and then we sat down at lunchtime and i gave her a very first boiled egg and i turned around to uh, make a cup of tea or something and this egg sailed past my ear and smashed onto the kitchen wall because i hadn't explained to her that actually this is something that you eat this is not this is not another rare kind of vaguely spherical object that we lob that we've been doing all morning um so the egg thing was about it was a couple of bits actually it was about knowing your teams um because since then we've discovered that our eldest daughter is an amazing athlete and that was our first indication that my god that kid could lob stuff she really could um so it was about getting to know the strengths of your team and to always in leadership expect the unexpected whatever you however you think the day is going to go however you've put that egg down there will always be the day where it comes absolutely sailing past you and you're like whoa where did that come from so in as leaders always being ready to expect the unexpected um, and my middle daughter where i thought i'd learned from my first one and i sat the egg down and i said look you know this is how we eat the egg. This is an egg. We eat it. We put the little spoon in. We eat that. She's fine. So again, I turned around, started washing up, and I was like, you're right, darling. How's, how's the egg going? And she's like, I, I like it. I said, do you like it? She said, yes, but I don't like the crunchy bits. <laughs> she's been eating the shell. <laughs> oh, my God. So again, it's a lesson in leadership that it doesn't matter how well you think you've explained something. <laughs> so, you will probably have to explain it again because somebody will misinterpret it. And again, that's about knowing your teams and recognising that who's going to misinterpret things and making sure your messages are clear. Um, the discos bit are so important. Not enough people have fun in leadership. And I don't mean some kind of enforced fun where you come in dressed in some weird fancy dress and end up doing some awful David Brent office-style dancing but actually just approaching the day as if it's actually something to be enjoyed because i think i say in the book about the toddlers skip off into every day full of joy and wonder and, and delight and then people say there's a leadership meeting and people are just like oh god um and it's because not enough people realize that actually working especially with young people even though when you move into leadership, it's still fun. You're ultimately working with the best colleagues in the world, which are children and young people, and you're getting to do the most wonderful things. And yes, some of it isn't particularly interesting, but actually, if you go in 
um, with this kind of mentality of, oh, I've got to be super serious and I've got to be kind of uber professional in every single meeting I'm in. And it's just no fun and it weighs you down. And I talk about grey people in grey meetings, in grey clothes, talking about grey things. And I used to come out of those meetings just thinking, oh, my God, I'm, just, I'm, so, I'm so depressed. <laughs> so, but actually, especially working with Claire and having two of us, it was it's about going into things with this kind of light mentality and not thinking like a child who puts on your, you know, the, the mum's high heels and pretends to, with the handbag. It's not pretending to be uber professional all the time. Obviously, you have to take your business seriously, but you don't have to be serious all the time to do that. And I've, I've met so many people over the years who just kind of turn their nose up at anybody who makes a lighthearted comment or tries to lift the mood. And I just think, stop being like a Dementor in Harry Potter. Stop <laughs> sucking out my soul. <laughs> and, and the other thing about that, about Find the Fun, is that in every kind of great piece of music or great piece of artwork, there's light and shade, there's, you know, there's quiet, there's noisy... If you're always just bland and grey, nobody ever knows how to take anything that you say. And actually being a really light-hearted, positive person, when you've got something serious to say and you shift gears and you do that, it's sometimes much more impactful than if you've constantly been the one who's just been on that, on that level and on that even keel. And also showing people that you have... I don't want to say sense of humour because that's subjective, but showing people that you are human and you enjoy life makes them much more likely to talk to you about their worries, their concerns, their their aspirations, and it just makes for a happier place to come to work. And I mean, I I am aware when I say this, I might be saying come into come into school like dressed as a clown and let's all just all be stupid all day. It's not about that. It's just about having a, a different attitude where you don't have to be uber serious all the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're not going to walk into an HR meeting or a, you know capability meeting doing the conga or anything. <laughs> but but it is. <laughs> I am not advocating that, not for one moment. That's when you do need to have your serious head on. But there's nothing to say you can't enjoy your job. And there's, I meet far too many people who are far too Dementor-like from Harry Potter. And then linked to that is that I want to do it on myself. Um, and my toddlers, all of them, I don't know why, but instead of saying do it by myself, so do it, I want to do it on myself. Um, and it would always be something like putting on their shoes or doing up their coat and always at the most inconvenient moment like when I just needed that to leave the house that was the exact moment they were going to do it on themselves but actually as a leader that that happens a lot people want to step up people want to take on more responsibility and you have to encourage that even though initially they may make mistakes they may kind of take a little bit of a while to get up to speed or they may need more mentoring or you know more support into that role that's part of being a leader is growing more leaders and encouraging people to be independent and we mustn't stifle that however initially you might think oh it's not the right time actually that it's always the right time to to develop somebody else it's always the right time to foster their independence to encourage their resilience to encourage them to have a go so that i want to do on myself is a recognition that actually as leaders if anybody pops their head up and goes oh i'd quite like to the answer should always be yes (laughs) yes by all means have a go (laughs) do it on yourself 
That's a, a, lo- a lovely one to, to finish that and kind of celebrating everyone that wants to, to move forward and allowing them to do that. And there was a lot of great messaging there about about being yourself and, and, and knowing your team. And I love that throwing an egg identified an athletic capability. I absolutely, absolutely love that as a as a physical educator myself. And She's the county champion now. <laughs> outstanding. Outstanding. <laughs> an early indication. She's a- <laughs> Field County Champion. <laughs> Unbelievable! You must be incredibly proud. I'm absolutely, absolutely love that, love that myself. Um, so, kind of moving on to further into, to, there's there's some great messages coming through on kind of the the kind of narrative around leadership. We're going to come back to that a bit later on. Um, the story that you you told about your daughter not liking Santa was was a really fascinating one. But what can we learn from this and uh, from her resolute stance? She was my middle daughter. Oh, my goodness. She is so she is so clear about what she does and doesn't like. There's no two ways about it. You know from day one with her. And one year, she decided she didn't like Santa. And I don't know if you've ever tried to avoid Santa in December, but it's like trying to avoid oxygen. Everywhere we went, it was like, <gasps> um, and we'd try and cajole her to go, you know, go and sit with Santa, go and have your picture with Santa, you know, go and get a present, you know, play school parties and nursery parties and, you know, family do's and just in town where Santa's like charity collecting and stuff. But she was absolutely, no, this is not for me. This is not something I do. I don't like it. I'm not. And I would be kind of verbal apologies over. I'm so sorry. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. She's not only like this. But actually, she didn't give a long kiss. She was not afraid to be unpopular. She was not afraid to go against the grain. She was not afraid to say, do you know what? This doesn't align with what I believe in. Um, and I get it was a, a, a real eye-opener and a, and a learning point for me that actually you don't always have to say what everybody expects you to say. Um, and if it's if it's something that you genuinely believe in, and go back to the chocolate buttons, the celery bit, then you, then you shouldn't be afraid to be unpopular. And especially if you're taking on a new leadership role where things might have been done in a certain way for a long time and there are ingrained behaviors and ingrained practices which might not be the most effective and you're going to have to change it's having that confidence to not be afraid to be unpopular um because if you're pleasing everybody all of the time you're not changing anything. You're just being a people pleaser. And change is always uncomfortable. Change is always difficult for somebody. Um, even if it's good change, it's, you know, there's, there'll be a, a period of learning, a period of, of, of adjustment. But it's about not being afraid to be the one to make that change, just like she did. <laughs> Actually, she was so afraid of Santa that we had, she refused to open her presents that year. She was like, I'm, he's touched them. <laughs> I'm not only we had to keep them for her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You got to so you, channel got, that kind channel that kind of attitude. You've got, you, you definitely you've got to admire the absolute resoluteness of it yeah. just to go not 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 having that. And it kinda of leads us on nicely what you said there about not being afraid to be unpopular. And how do the little ones teach us to have the sometimes necessary tricky conversations? Um, they, they're very honest. <laughs> uh, for example, my middle daughter drew a picture of me 
And she said, I've drawn you, mummy, but it's not quite right because I haven't got a brown crayon. I said, why do you need a brown crayon? She said, for that bit of your hair where it meets your head. (laughs) 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 It's yellow, but I haven't got a brown. (laughs) Thank you, darling. Yes, my roots do need doing. (laughs) But they are very, they're very honest. They don't, they don't cloud a conversation with, extraneous details and if you are going to have a a difficult conversation with somebody and the chances are when I'm talking about tricky conversations I'm talking about a conversation that is as a result of a series of prior kind of nice nicer conversations um when you actually do have to have a really difficult conversation with somebody um actually being really clear and really honest about what you need to say is absolutely paramount if you try and fluff it with lots of extraneous details then the message gets lost so the first thing that toddlers do is they don't say very much but what they do say is very clear and it's very honest they say less and because they say less they encourage this kind of clarity and honesty around it because i've come out of so many meetings before and I've just thought, what the hell was that about? Because everybody's skirted around the issue so much that you're not quite sure what the meeting was about or what, or what it was said. Um, and in there, one of the things that they do is if you say less, there's more silence. And in silence, then you actually hear what's really being said because people then chip in or they've got time to think or you start to see the non-verbal cues that you might not ordinarily see if you kind of race through a conversation. So the pace of a tricky conversation is often a lot slower. Um, and toddlers will take time to think. Then They're not bothered about a pause in a conversation. If, if they need to think about something, they'll just stop talking and think about it. Whereas adults, we, we like to fill the space. We like to fill the conversation with words, even if they mean anything. But actually, another thing we can learn from them is this idea of silence. Um, the other thing that they don't do is that they don't agonise about tricky conversations afterwards. They don't come away from a ruckus at the sand pit, lie there in bed at night and go, I handled that really badly with that spade. That was <laughs> that was done really, oh, I shouldn't have done, what if I'd have done this? I should have done that, shouldn't I? They don't do this kind of negative self-talk. It's happened, it's over, they kind of box it off, they've learned from it or, or they're going to take the actions that need to be taken and then that's it. Because as much as you would like to go back in time and rehab a tricky conversation, you can't so there's no point you did you did the best you did at the time you had it with the information that you had your own kind of moral compass and and the people that were in the room nobody goes into a difficult conversation wanting to offend somebody or wanting to do it badly so if you've prepared well been honest been clear been kind as well because a lot of tricky conversations are with colleagues who are maybe struggling with something or with a parent who's in a really desperate situation and kindness goes a hell of a long way. That doesn't mean condoning, you know, really awful things that are happening or really poor practice, but it's just recognising the need to be kind and humane in that in that moment. Um, and part of that kindness comes from having developed those genuine positive relationships which come from that unconditional positive regard because it's much easier to have a conversation with somebody who trusts you than somebody who's sitting there thinking what are they really getting at 
So if they trust what's coming out of your mouth because they've got that really good relationship with you, because you develop that relationship over time, that tricky conversation is likely to be heard better by that person. And also the actions that you want them to do received better. So tricky conversations don't stand on their own. They stand on top of all of the other groundwork that, that you've done, that you've built up. And they are they're values driven and they're honest. Um, and the other thing I'd say about a tricky conversation is when a toddler is either, I don't mean told off, you tell toddlers off, but if they've had a little moment where they've had, they had to be told that, no, you can't have that, or, you know, we're not going there, or they've been disappointed by something, or somebody said something mean to them, they seek support afterwards. They come and have a cuddle. They come and sit on your lap. And I'm, I don't mean like walk into the office and go, I've had a terrible time with Mrs. So-and-so, like bring on the hugs. But actually, it's about seeking support before you go into a tricky conversation. So making sure if it's something that affects somebody's pay or somebody's employment status or it's a safeguarding issue, make sure you sort support, specialist support beforehand so you've got all that information to hand. And then afterwards, I mean, I've been in some meetings with especially parents and, and safeguarding meetings that are basically traumatic, the things that you hear and the things that you're party to. You can't just go straight from that into the rest of your day. You've got to take some time to actually process what was said and to seek support afterwards. Now, that might be a trusted colleague in the school. It might be a trusted colleague who does a similar job in in another school. It's a confidential like coaching conversation. Or it might be seeking support from a union or an HR advisor. But if you've genuinely had a tricky conversation, a difficult conversation, the worst thing you can possibly do is to go straight into something else. You need to take time to reflect, make your notes, think about it. In the same way a toddler comes in, my, will come and sit on my lap, put his thumb in his mouth and just have a cuddle for five minutes. It's that restorative moment. Say, so, you know, this something not particularly nice has just happened. Let's think about it and then get on with your day. And we don't take the time as, as leaders and teachers to, to do that to actually reflect on what's happened and and the impact it has on us. Um, So honesty, clarity, silence, support (laughs) for tricky conversations. Very very beautifully summed up. I'm sure that'll help many, many people as they they go forth back into schools, hopefully soon. Um, How important, uh, Emma, is it that all staff prioritise the basics? Oh, sleep, food, play. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, well, toddlers will never tell you, well, they will never be hungry. You always know when they're hungry. You always know when they want to play. And if they're tired, they're going to sleep. And as adults, we go, we've stopped functioning as normal human beings. We know we don't need any sleep. We don't need any exercise. And we don't need to eat anything nutritious because we are superhero teachers. I will survive on staff room biscuits, no sleep and just sit in my office or my classroom and work for 17 hours a day. Um, And what happens then is, I think I liken it in the book to, was you're flying flying a plane through a thunderstorm is to say, right, now's the time to cut one of the engines. (laughs) No. When you're working in a demanding role, being teaching or, or leading, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to sleep well. You've got to eat well. You've got to give yourself time to exercise. And, and within play is reconnecting with the people who love you, like your family, your friends. Um, 
any you know anybody who gives you support basically and if we don't prioritize those we will burn out and the, as soon as we burn out we start to make bad decisions we become less effective i think it's the harvard study from from america that says anything over 50 hours starts to impact negatively on your performance and af- after 55 hours it bec- it actually hit, makes things worse <laughs> so if if you're not having time to eat to sleep to play and actually you need to look at your workload with with whoever manages your workload and say look this is becoming ineffective because you need to prioritize sleep free play just like toddlers do just because we're kind of 35 45 whatever doesn't mean that our needs are any different from when we were three (laughs) we don't do that we just think oh i'll I'll skip lunch and no toddler goes i'm far too busy at the same (laughs) thing I'm not going to eat. I mean, to be fair, my kids didn't sleep, but they slept in the day. Um, and they're like, no, no, I, I can't possibly come and play with the bricks. I've, I've got to master this spoon. You know, <laughs> they just don't do crazy stuff like that. But we as adults decide that that's not for us. And it, we need to go back to being three, basically two or three. A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree in, in that idea. And we now have so many apps that track our sleep. It's, we've, we've forgotten so much about how how much we actually need it is that we now all wear, I, mean, I, I wear wearable tech that, the fact that tracks my sleep, like we've forgotten that we actually need to sleep. Um, me out. I can't use those. Then I get paranoid about how much I've had. <laughs> this sort of thing. And then I get more stressed. <laughs> Oh, tell me, I get fixated on the. Um, I use a whoop strap when it tells us your performance and your recovery, how how ready your body is to take on to call it strain, take on physical activity that day, or a high vast cardiovascular load. And if my, if I'm not green, I'm like, how am I not green? Why am I not green? I slept for eight hours. Why am I not green? I get so fixated on it. But and then my good lady turns around and goes, "It's like you're basing this all on what technology?" <laughs> but but. That's neither here nor there. So, kind of, we're gonna kind of sum up there and kind of move on to the kind of the final stages around school leadership, and then move on to our final th- final three. Emma, um, kind of on school leadership, what is missing from our current narrative around school leadership? Oh, how long you got? Um, for, for basically, a diversity is missing from leadership. Um, there's still this pervasive narrative of one leader, one school, ever present. Um, one way of doing things. It's changing. It is changing. There's, there's amazing work by people like Flex Teach Talent, um, Women Ed, Shared Headship Network, who are actively promoting other ways of looking at leadership in schools. But there's not that diversity yet. And part of the problem is um, it's always been done this way. And we're yet to have anybody really in the adult population who's come through a school where there has been a shared leadership model. I mean, the children who were our first cohort when Claire and I did the co-headship, there'll be about 20 now. But there's no one really out there who can go, oh, yeah, I remember that at school. So in our kind of historical narrative, Mm -hmm. historical experience, the head teacher is one person who works full time. And until the models start coming through, I don't think that part will change. Although weirdly, when we took on our co-headship, we didn't get much kickback from the parents. And I think that's because education has such a long way to go to catch up with the wider world of work because everybody works flexibly outside of education, yet in education we're locked into this historical model. 
Um, I think that there needs to be a wider recognition of the need for change. I think some people are kind of um, driving into a into a, a leadership and recruitment catastrophe with their eyes shut, not realising that actually not only is the recruitment and retention issue at the early career stage, but actually it's going to be at, at the leadership stage as well. There's so many people going to retire. So there's the recognition of the need to look at different models. And the more diversity you get in the type of model, the more diversity of person you will have in that role. And the more diverse people you have, the more diverse voices you have. And therefore, there's such an opportunity for the education system to sound better and to become more different because it's being led by a much broader range of people with a more diverse range of, of, of both life experiences and work experiences. So I think there just needs to be more agility in, uh, in the way that we look at leadership. And we need to almost like tear up the rule book. And one of the, again, one of the I don't want to say great things because it's not great to have a pandemic. But one of the things that the pandemic has, has put a spotlight on is that there are so many different ways to do this. And I wrote a TS article last week, actually, about everything we thought we couldn't change has been changed in the last three weeks. You can't scrap assessments. Oh, we have. You can't school, you can't school remotely. Oh, we have. You can't have school leaders working flexibly from home. Oh, we have. <laughs> it's everything we thought. It's almost like the rule book's been mm. torn up. Um, and obviously this isn't flexible working because everybody's forced into it and it's all been done at breakneck speed on the hoof. It's, and, and obviously you've got your kids at home partners at home it's not true flexible working but what it has done is said nothing is impossible mm -hmm. which is a which is a great narrative to bring into the next phase of the maturation of the leadership system as in it's sort of said yes we did it this way for ages but then we had to do it like this and we did it so that means that actually there's a bit of wriggle room now there's been more fuel added to the change fire if you like Mm, certainly, I'd, definitely. We, I talk about that. My my good lady is a, a dentist working for the working in for the NHS, and we talk about it all the time with our with our group of group of friends. That it's going to change the way that people work forever. Yeah. You know, we've got friends who are still working eight nine hour days, but they're doing it from their couch. Yeah. Why, why would a company need to have an office space that they pay thousands of pounds a month for when they, everyone can just sit at home and do the same stuff? I see. I, I was talking about this the other day. I was saying, actually, what what's missing from that is connection because for well-being and for um, just for general interacting as a human, there still needs to be that connection. So it might be that people work less office-based or less, central team based but actually ultimately you do need those human interactions because what have people been crying out for they've been crying out for seeing their colleagues they're setting up the zoom chats they're setting up the skypes they're doing whatever because there's a there's an actual human need to connect with people so i think that yes people will work more flexibly and there'll be more more kind of wriggle room in the system but ultimately people have also recognized the flip side of that that people need to be together and especially in our profession, which is all about being together and being part of a community, um, 
it'll have shone a light on on better ways to do that and, and it's shone a light on the importance of recognizing our role as teachers and educators in that as well mm-hmm. definitely there's definitely conversations to be had moving forward and see how that changes it's, gonna, it's definitely going to be an exciting time for education once we <laughs> come but i surely hope so so positive spins for a pandemic it's exciting <laughs> Definitely, definitely trying to trying to trying to find the find the positives in the in the time. So then, kind of coming up to the end of the interview section, um, how do you define the future of leadership? And could you share a little bit about the joyful unicorn of leadership development? Well, the joyful unicorn of leadership development is the antithesis to the four horsemen of the leadership apocalypse, which is what I talk about at the beginning of the of, of the book about all the problems that people perceive with leadership, which are the four horsemen of the leadership apocalypse. The joyful unicorn, God, I sound so flaky when I say this. Um, it's about we've already touched on the idea of being more flexible. That the one of the joyous things about leadership is that you have greater autonomy. And with greater autonomy comes greater confidence um, because as a leader, you actually get to, to set what happens. It was such a revelation to me. It sounds so stupid that when you're the leader, you're the person you're accountable to. So you set the deadlines. And if you don't meet that deadline, the only person that's going to tell you off is yourself, really. Obviously, there are boards and trustees and whatever but actually there's so much more autonomy you organize your diary you organize the meetings you organize the schedules obviously taking into account everybody else but actually there's so much more flexibility and so much more autonomy and people are like oh i can't take on more in leadership i'm already struggling i can't take on more and be a leader well actually this joyful unicorn bit was actually saying don't tell anyone but some bits are actually easier you know, because of this idea of this, it's more flexible and there's greater autonomy, and that bit needs demystifying. That actually, yes, the accountability of leadership can be terrifying, but actually the day-to-day business of it can sometimes give you the flexibility that you're actually after because you're kind of setting what happens. And also, the the natural maturation that's going on in the system is another great joy, which, which we've kind of touched on that actually leadership is changing and it doesn't have to be dictated by everything that's come before. So the joyous bit is being part of the next phase of leadership development and the next kind of wave of leaders who can be this flexible, autonomous, demystified new new lot of, of, of leaders. And it was a great privilege Claire and I had to be part of that, being one of the, one of the first co-headships, which is now a model that everybody's clamouring kind of set up and, and have so yeah that was um that was a little bit of the the, the joyous unicorn um and, the, and i think i talk about one of the things that needs to happen in leadership is that we need to pull the pull the curtain from the leadership conjurer's table because one of the things that i found out about in, in especially in headship was i went to my first headship network meeting terrified thinking I'm going to meet all these like superhuman, amazing people. And to be, don't get me wrong, really experienced, really talented, really clever people, but ultimately just people. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. no, there's no magic about them. They were just people doing a job. And I was like, that needs demystifying as well. Don't ever think you can't do it because you're not some amazing person. Absolutely. Actually, Absolutely. these are just people doing a job. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're just, they do, they do a very, very good job. 
Um, but yeah, amazing. They, but um, yeah, exactly. Anyone can can. There's this idea that leadership isn't for anyone, but it, I I truly believe that it actually is. Um, so can I sum up the interview sec? Can I end the interview section before we move on to the final three questions, which I ask all the guests? Where can uh, listeners buy your book, and where can they find out more about with you, engage with you, or on social media, perhaps? I tweet at Emma underscore Turner 75, which I rue the day I put that Twitter handle together because it gives away my age. And I always say I'm going to change it to Emma underscore Turner and then change the 75 to the 85 and have a photo taken in some good light. <laughs> because the, the 75 does give away my age. So you can, you can tweet me on there. Emma underscore Turner 75. I write for TS. If you say if you want to TS and Google my name, you can read some of my articles. You can buy the book, Be More Toddler, direct from John Cat, or it's on Amazon, or it's in other other bookshops as well. Apparently a big posh one, which I forget the name of, but I should have known apparently when somebody told me it was in there. I was like, oh. Waterstones? No, <laughs> it began with an F. Oh. Not Waterstones, mm. but it is in you can order it from Waterstones. Um, and then I often talk at Women Ed events, Brew Ed events. I had loads of events lined up, but obviously they've all been they've all been cancelled because of the um, social distancing coronavirus thing. But yeah, you can catch me on there. Or what else do I do? Podcasts with Phil Naylor as well. I sometimes um, not co-host. What do I do? Host for him. Guest host. That's what <laughs> Guest host. Yeah, I've I've listened to some of your some of your interviews with. Uh, can't remember. Yes, I've listened to, to a few of them. I listen to listen to Phil's podcast quite a lot, um, and uh, I'm actually trying, looking forward to speaking to him soon myself. I can't wait, looking forward to that. Oh, hello, Phil. I love Phil. <laughs> he's such a nice boy. He's such, <laughs> and he's a fellow fan of that book. I'm going to tell you about. Brilliant. I look forward to that. So, can I can I move us nicely on to the to the final three? And it starts with what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career. <sighs> Easiest question you've asked me all night. It is called The Magic Weaving Business by Sir John Jones. And it is the best education book ever in the history of education books. If you haven't read it, you've missed a treat. And I often say to people, if it doesn't change your life, I'll give you 20 quid. Um, If you ever get to see Sir John Jones speak, just go. He is absolutely awesome. Had to introduce him at an event that where we booked him, and it's probably the most nerve-wracking moment of my life. It was like when the X Factor contestants sing with Beyonce; they get to they get to like be with their heroes. I'm, like, I'm on the stage with John Jones, Sir John Jones. It's amazing. Um, but he is absolutely brilliant. That book, every educator should read it. And actually, we run a skit um, as within our trust. And it's a core text on on my recommendation now for all of our skit students. You have to read it if you're a teacher. It's just beautiful and brilliant. I'm going to make that an absolute priority to to read. (laughs) I've never read a book like it before or since. And I go back to it again and again and again. And if you're ever feeling a bit jaded by education, just go back and read that and you'll come out absolutely all guns blazing again i look forward to, to reading that and thank you so much um second question emma is if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher what would that be apart from read that book <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> uh 
it's a little bit like the chocolate buttons thing is is remember your why why did you go into teaching what did you want to achieve and whenever you're planning a lesson whenever you're sitting in a staff meeting whenever you're talking to a child whenever you're talking to a parent just remember why you went into this profession and let that guide everything that you do um, because it's so easy to get swayed by the latest fad or the latest bit of information or you know you've had a rough week you've got a difficult class it's so easy to just sort of think oh you know this this is not for me or to to just not be your best and it's just about reconnecting with that why you went into it and again john jones talks about that a lot in his book but find your why reconnect with your why and when when things are a bit rough or even just when you're planning a lesson just think does it actually align with (laughs) what i'm all about really bit harder when you're teaching like fronted adverbials to kind of reconnect with your wife actually <laughs> on the whole <laughs> certainly it's certainly important that we, that we remember why we why we do what we do especially when the in the in a in a late night in december when you've got a, a parent team that lasts till half past eight and you're back in it at yeah. eight o'clock the next morning um my final question to you, Emma, and what's been a, a, a wonderful interview is, what do you think gets in the way of great teaching and learning in our classrooms? Oh, over-initiativing, if that's even a word. <laughs> I, think a, I think a lack of clarity, um, a lack of clarity about, you know, really what makes great teaching on great teachers. Um, and I think that, historically there've been there's been so much tinkering so many changes and teachers are good people who want to do the right thing and so they're constantly trying to adapt to moving goalposts all the time and actually that just gets in the way of great teaching and learning because the research is out there about what makes great teaching and learning the great teachers are in the classroom the great people are there you just got to bring those two together what doesn't help is then once those great teachers are in there it's just lobbying incentive not incentive initiative it'd be nice to have an incentive initiative 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 constantly at them which clouds the actual focus which is getting on with the business of teaching and learning so endless curriculum changes endless assessment changes endless changes to this is how we're meant to do it this is not how we're meant to do it just let teachers engage with the research find out what works in teaching and learning and then trust them to do a really good job that's what i think gets in the way absolute (laughs) beautiful way to end the the podcast emma all i've got left to do is to thank you so so much for giving me your time tonight i've i've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you for the Become an Educated podcast so thank you very very much pleasure absolute pleasure nice way to while away a pandemic (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast until next time teach with joy